us tonight, our passage comes from Matthew 5, 38 through 48. So here we go. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard, it, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sin re- sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, must, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Three things we'll talk about. This is just a little bit of a roadmap, not a rigid kind of point by point, but this is where we're going. Deformed payback, transformed payback, and gospel payback. Let's pray before we talk about what Frank just read for us. Father, our greatest hope is that you are the living God and that the way you are and who you are is a God who does not return evil for evil. A God who does not uh, retaliate on those who seek refuge in you. You are one who is slow to anger and lightning fast toward compassion. One who is abundant in mercy, abundant in pardon. And so I pray that the effect tonight of your word going out into our ears and our hearts and our heads, the effect of it, the fruit of it would be that we would see you more that way, believe you are that way, and that it would begin to just flow out of us towards each other, particularly those that we don't see any hope of friendship with. This is your heart for your children. It's your desire for us. It's your eager agenda that you, Holy Spirit, are working in us. So work away tonight, we pray, through my weak words. I ask this in your name. Amen. Well, it, um, it seems like to me, and I'm sure it seems like to you as well, that there's a, that the list of seemingly acceptable reasons to abandon your friends and to move on from a relationship is getting longer and longer. And it seems like the uh, average person's like list of friends is shrinking and list of enemies or people that you won't be friends with or can't see yourself being friends with seems to be growing. Surely in one way or another in your family, in, your, in the classes that you're in, uh, in your major, in your cohort, in your friend group, you've seen this happening, particularly the past couple of years. Even if you live in a hole, you've probably heard of it happening because it's all in the media the past year. They've called it, or they're calling it, the great unfriending of 2020 and 2021. And so what's on the list of acceptable reasons or seemingly acceptable reasons to kind of blacklist a friend and move on to new friends, to be done, 
to look for the exit ramp in a friendship or a relationship? Well, the tragic thing is, is that the list includes lots of very normal, otherwise neutral things, things you wouldn't think would be deal breakers, but have become that. So the list of things that could cause us to reclassify someone from a friend to the enemy category, or the, I, I can't be friends with someone like that, or I won't be friends with someone like that, includes things like opinions on vaccination, opinions on face mask, or the Goldilocks thing of like, what's not too much or too little, but just right with COVID policy can become a deal breaker between people who are friends. Your opinions on all kinds of hot things that have happened in the past couple of years, right? I mean, your, your opinion on what happened a couple of summers ago with, uh, with racial injustice, with the protests that resulted. Your opinions on hot button political stuff like the abortion law in Texas and what comes out of that. Um, your thoughts about January 6th, your thoughts about kind of the seismic shifts that are happening culturally with gender, sexuality, who you voted for, who you're gonna vote for. As I mentioned these things, you're probably thinking of a few, like that uncle, yep, my, my family doesn't talk, he's not invited anymore. You think like that friend, I can't be friends with that girl anymore, with that guy anymore, because this became a wedge between us. This was the exit ramp for our friendship. And then here comes Jesus in the middle of midterms in this city on a night like night tonight, and he starts talking about this stuff. And he's not so much, I think, concerned in this particular moment with defining why people become our enemies or how that process unfolds. He's more concerned in this particular moment and this particular passage with what do you do next once somebody has become an enemy of yours? And by enemy of yours, I might mean um, so, as soon as you get a gut sense that somebody's playing on the other team, they're not on your side anymore, they're rowing in a different direction, they're not about the things that you're about, they're a threat, Jesus wants to talk with you about what you do next once you hit that point with another person, whether they're known to you, they were a friend, or whether they're a stranger and it's a group of people. He wants to talk about payback. He wants to talk about score settling, about vendettas, about vengeance, about our response to our enemies, about retribution, about getting even. And he doesn't just want to talk about the, the actions of score settling or cold shoulder. He wants to talk about the heart attitude that produces that kind of stuff. If we're going to talk about this stuff, we should at least start with a definition and we should avoid the dictionary because Jesus defines it. So we can look at the passage and derive it from what he says here and from the context of what is an enemy. And before I even define that, I'm, it's important that we define it. Because if you're like me, like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a pretty friendly guy. I'd be shocked and really hurt if I found that there's a person out there that would describe me as their enemy. I mean, that would undo me. And as I rack my brain, I can't think of like someone that I think of as my enemy. Um, and what I want to suggest to you is perhaps the reality is not that we don't have enemies. It's that we have such a drama-laden definition of what an enemy is that not many people fit the bill. I mean, they've got to be like a terrorist to be labeled an enemy. 
because it's such a charged, kind of dramatic definition of an enemy. And so I think it's important that at the outset we correctly define what an enemy is and how that, what that feels like in our hearts so that we can hear what Jesus says about it. Because, because I don't consider myself to have many enemies or think that there's people out there that would call me an enemy, most of this stuff for most of my life has gone right over my head. I'm like, well, this, I know technically it applies to me, like on a really bad week when I'm all hot and bothered, but normally it doesn't apply to me. I'm good here. If you can relate to that, listen up. There's a broader definition of what an enemy is than our usually narrow definitions that allow us to fly under the radar. I think we need a more flexible definition. Jesus gives it to us. And so in the passage, uh, and I'm, I'm doing a little bit of the work for you. If we were in a Bible study, we could dialogue about this. But when you look at the totality of these 10 verses and you say, how does Jesus define what an enemy is? It's not so much that he would say your enemy are those people you're not friends with as much as your enemies are those people you won't be friends with or people you think you can't be friends with for whatever reason. So not so much the people you're not friends with as much as the people you won't be friends with or can't be friends with. It would be really any person or group of people, whether they're a known quantity to you or a stranger, for whom there's resistance in your heart against them. There's a resistance like a north end of a magnet and a south end of a magnet, and you're like, you feel the force field with that group of people or that person. Try that definition on, and I imagine, like me, you'll start to pay attention a little bit more. I was like, okay, I can think of people who fit that definition. I can think of groups of people, lots of them, that I feel resistance to, that force field, that magnetic aversion to. People that I've made a list, what I was talking about earlier, the, the list of, the, the, the growing list of enemies are people that you're like, I just can't be friends with those people or I won't be friends with a person who believes like that, thinks like that, acts like that, talks like that. That's the kind of enmity that Jesus has his eyes on here. Also, while we're here, we should just throw in this thought. I also think we tend to kind of get ourselves off the hook of words like these and think and have, have trouble finding them relevant because our definition of love is off base too. We can define love as the mere absence of heated conflict. If that's your definition of love, your operating definition of what love means, then it's easy to think of yourself as a loving person, right? And I'm guilty there too. <laughs> because I often think of myself as a pretty friendly, loving guy. And what I mean by that, if you pressed me, is there's not heated conflict. There's not a lot of relationships in my life that are on fire, that are like a dumpster fire right now. That's a pretty, that's a pretty bare bones definition of love, right? Like the absence of a shooting war. Whereas the Bible or God would show us that love is not the absence of conflict. Love is the positive presence of genuine affection and doing good. So love isn't defined as the absence of bad stuff. It's the presence of beautiful stuff. It's the presence of godly stuff towards other people. And so in this, um, war can be cold and war can be hot. The, the war between the Russians and the US from the 60s to the 90s was just as much a war as the war between the Germans and the US in the 40s. 
Just as much enmity and resistance and aversion existed between those two parties in a cold war where a shot was never fired and in a hot war where there were a ton of casualties. So our enemies aren't just those people that we've had verbal spats with or heated arguments with, but also the people we're ignoring, dismissing, avoiding, or not listening to. Um, just to bring it down to earth, and I promise you we'll move on, but I've heard it said in the past couple of years, and I'm sure you have too, some of these things I might have said, some of these things you might have said. But I've heard it said, and I think this is the language of enmity that flies under the radar, but I can't be friends with anybody who's progressive. I, can't, I, I could never be friends with somebody who thinks conservatively, politically, or theologically. I could, never be, I could never be friends with someone who believes that the Bible says marriage is between a man and a woman. Or some of you might think I could never be friends with somebody who thinks the Bible condones that. I won't be friends with those people. I can't be friends with those people. I can't even be around those people. I can't be friends with someone who's all caught up in being woke. Somebody who's got their head in the sand. Or, so, or you might say somebody who's got their head in the sand and can't see what's right in front of their eyes. Do you think these things? Like they're just scratched off the list. I can't be around those people. If I go to a small group and they're there, I'm leaving. This, I think, is the language of enmity. It's the language of heart resistance. It's a lack of graciousness. It's a lack of love. And it's personal stuff too. And I know this stuff is heated. I'm trying to be real and not kind of like play with kid gloves here. Like, let's talk about what's actually going on. But there's the personal stuff too, where we think like, I'm done with him and all of his friends because he dated my best friend and he didn't date her perfectly. Or she didn't date my best friend perfectly and so her and her entire friend group is just out of bounds for me, gonna avoid them, gonna make sure every other guy here, every other girl here knows, stay away. Or we think about people in our friend groups, they've never given me a second's worth of attention. So I'm going to ghost them back. And I'm going to just kind of, they're going to be invisible to me in this room or in my social circle. In Jesus' day, it's I won't be in a relationship, the Jews would say, I won't be in a relationship with a Gentile, with a pagan, with a Samaritan, with anybody who's unclean. I can't. I won't. So Jesus, from that point, that's the context, that's the starting point. He's not talking to people who are a blank slate and are like, we're so loving, tell us how to love better. That's who he's talking to. That's his audience, then and now. And then he starts describing the propensity for deformed payback, for, for, for what we do next after somebody has kind of become an enemy or we classify them as not one of us. They're one of those people. What do we do next in these situations? Jesus offers us an answer. And it's going to involve stuff like this. Maybe he offers us an answer through questions. Do we retreat back to our tribe and like double down on the sameness of our friend group? Do we double down on justifying why we're right and they're wrong? And I'm not saying there's, that everybody's right and there is no truth. I'm just saying, what's your propensity? Do you immediately double down on all the reasons why my perspective is absolutely right and theirs is absolutely wrong? Do we cloak our resistance to other people kind of in the, in the clothing of biblical wisdom or boundary talk or I love this person better from a really long distance? 
I'm not saying there's not legitimate moments for that or places for that. I'm asking what's the motive behind it? What's the attitude that produces those thoughts? That's what the average Israelite was doing in Jesus' day. And it's why he starts this little piece of the Sermon on the Mount with saying, you've heard it said. In other words, it's the conventional wisdom of the day. It's what every rabbi is teaching. It's what you've grown up hearing, he says to those people. You've grown up hearing. The conventional wisdom has been what he says in verse 38. You've heard that the law says punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then in verse 43, you've heard it said that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But that was a distorted heart kind of deforming how God has talked about and taught his people and showed his people to love their enemies. That's not, in fact, what the law said. In verse 43, what he, what, I'll start there and I'll go backwards to the first one. What the law actually said is love your neighbor as yourself. The law didn't say, and hate your enemy. Well, how did, they arrive, how did the conventional wisdom devolve to a point where it said, and every little boy and girl grew up hearing, love your, enemy, or, love your neighbor, hate your enemy? Here's how. People had such a hard time wrestling with this call and command and vision to love your neighbor as yourself. And that seemed like such an expansive call to, to, to love everybody in a way that you would want to be loved. And so they started to narrow down the definition of who a neighbor is. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. The lawyer says, well, who is my neighbor? And over the centuries, the Israelites had so narrowed the definition of who a neighbor is that it was essentially only people who believed everything you believed, lived like you lived, desired what you desired, basically were a carbon copy of you. Anybody not like you was not your neighbor, and therefore you weren't called to love them. They were your enemy. That's how that thinking devolved to the point of love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And then in verse 38, you've heard that the law says the punishment must match the injury or some of your translations. Um, say something different. I'll, I'll say a word about why I chose this translation in a minute. But Jesus is taking issue with how people had deformed God's call to love and respond to insults and injury. They had twisted what he said. Verse 38, what the law actually was doing and the principle that's there of an eye for an eye and a tooth for roof, out of context to us can sound like Taliban justice. You steal, you lose your hand. You know, you do this or that, you get your eye gouged out. We're like barbaric. The original intention of this principle that's throughout the Old Testament was to constrain and contain evil. An unjust, disproportionate punishment. It protected both the criminal, the one doing the crime, and the victim of the crime. It protected the criminal because it's like, if you, you know, slipped the candy bar in the store and walked out the door and the shop owner came and got you, it's unjust and inequitable to execute you for theft. People did that. Carry a big stick. You make an example of this person, nobody else will steal from my store. And so God comes in, he says, no, it's proportional. The punishment has to fit the crime. It's unjust to have a... a, a an extraordinarily heavy punishment for a relatively minor crime. But it also protected the victim. 
If somebody got in a fist fight with your dad when you were a little kid and he ended up falling back and hitting his head on a rock and dying, the law said if you have taken a life, you must give up your life. There was proportionality there. And if you're that little boy or that little girl and somebody killed your dad and you have to live with the rest of your life and you're like, this guy got two years in prison, he got slapped on the wrist, that's not just either. So the intention of the command and this principle was to Punishment fits the crime to protect everybody. To keep everybody from being the victim of kind of vigilante justice on either side or mob rule. But people's hearts had twisted that that was supposed to constrain evil into something that condones their evil and gives them carte blanche to just go on vigilante raids and extract as much justice as you feel like you needed. So what was originally only an eye for an eye, only a tooth for a tooth, became you owe me your eye and you owe me a tooth. It's my right. And I'm going to pursue it to the end of the, end of the statute, to the end of the law. I'm going to get every last bit of justice out of you. I'm going to squeeze you dry. It gave permission to the darkest impulses of how we relate to those who cause us trouble and don't bring us any benefit. And that's what Jesus is taking issue with. It was a, it was a self-justifying attitude that, ju that validated a graceless spirit in their hearts and the actions that grew out of it. So Jesus isn't forbidding justice. He's forbidding vigilante justice. He's forbidding each of us going on our own personal vendettas until we feel like she's paid her bills or he's paid his bills and justice is satisfied. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, it doesn't fit the new kingdom you're a part of. It doesn't fit the family you're in. So why do we respond with such heat and energy to, to those who have insulted us or wronged us or injured us? There's a specific thing that Jesus is zeroing in in this passage that gives us a clue to what's going on here. In verse 39, he says, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person or basically don't drag them into court. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Now I said, um, I mean, this is, let's nerd out for 30 seconds. I promise we'll end it at 30 seconds. Some of you pay attention to things like Bible translation. You're like, Ben, what's NLT? It's the New Living Translation and it's a great translation like the other ones we use. I used this because I thought it most accurately reflected the flavor and the sense of the language of what's going on and what Jesus says here. What Jesus says here is not if somebody comes and punches you in the nose and breaks your cheekbone, turn the other side of your cheek too. The context and the language of what he's saying here is if somebody slaps you with the back of their hand, it's not, it's not an aggressive moment of violence, it's a humiliating moment of social insult as it would be today if you're in a group and somebody just backhands you. Your life's not in danger. Jesus isn't calling you to be a doormat for abuse that's being done to you or unrestrained evil that's being let loose. He's not calling you to just sit there and take it until you're within an inch of your life. He's specifically talking about social persecution, insults, humiliation, being bullied, being attacked in similar circumstances. He's talking about moments not when your life and your well-being is on the line, but when your honor and your social standing 
and your reputation is on the line. And before we, we say, we look at what he says to do about that, again, the question of why such heated responses when those are the things that are being attacked in us. When you make a joke or a comment and, it, and I feel shamed by it or dishonored by it, why am I so quick, and I am, to feel like I need to correct the record or bring you back down to size too and even things out and let everybody know, well, you're not so great yourself. Why do you feel that impulse too? I gotta get in there and say my piece to settle the score. Why do we get so defensive? Well, defensiveness presumes there's something very, very precious to you worthy of defending. People guard things that are valuable to them. There's no guard outside this building, but at the banks downtown, there's guards. When they take the money out of the ATM, there's guards and they got guns. They're defending something that's valuable to them and you defend what's most valuable to you. Why so defensive in the areas you and I are defensive? It's because our honor, our standing, our reputation, how people see us, what people think of us matters the world to us. And Jesus would have us consider why as part of the cure and part of the solution to such a knee-jerk reaction, such a catalyzed reaction to insult and humiliation. Jesus is saying, don't die on the hill when you're insulted. Absorb the insult and pay it back with something other than evil. This is the second point, the transformed payback. Here's an illustration. God's, what, what, what God really calls and desires from his sons and his daughters in this new kingdom, what it looks like when the life of heaven begins to colonize and take root and be unleashed in your life and your heart and your relationships and your conflict is when, when you're more of a uh, circuit breaker than, the, than the, the cock and the hammer on a pistol. So a circuit breaker feels this surge of energy and it breaks. And it prevents that surge of energy from ruining the rest of the house. And a pistol feels the same surge of energy, the same pressure, and it sends a bullet out the chamber towards its intended target. And God is calling his people to, like him, absorb the impact and break so that the evil doesn't go out the barrel and start taking out casualties. And also send evil right back to you, which you're gonna send evil right back to them and ad infinitum. He's calling you to break, that the energy stops with you, that the evil stops with you, that it's absorbed and not retaliated and not paid back. Unlike the bullet in the chamber that feels the firing pin hit it and goes right out. And they feel the pressure and the firing pin hits in their gun and comes right back at you. So how do we do this? What transforms our payback and our retaliation, our retribution, what we give back in lieu of what we receive? At least our security and our allegiance has to be to something bigger than just my social standing, my reputation, what people think of me. Because if that's all that my allegiance is to, if that's what I live for and will die for, your life's gonna be filled with conflict. You're gonna be surrounded by enemies. Because what if other people feel that way too? And it's a zero sum game. 
and every insult, every time you don't acknowledge them, every time you don't treat them the way they think they needed to be treated, they come at you and you come back at them. But if your allegiance is to something bigger than just yourself or your honor, your reputation, your standing, if your security is in someone other than just that, it frees us to respond in a circuit breaker kind of way instead of a pistol kind of way. And this is what Jesus is really ultimately calling us to is, have you entrusted your life and your honor and your reputation to a good father who has eyes and a memory and does take notes and does take names and is just and will render an accounting for every idle, accidental or intentional form of evil from you and everybody else, either in the person of Jesus on the cross bearing his anger or bearing his anger themselves. How much does that affect how you treat your enemies? How much does that liberate you to love your enemies and those you have nothing in common with and those you fundamentally think have it all wrong and might have it all wrong, might be completely living in another planet? How does it free us to be about something bigger? What we pay back to our enemies is mercy, Jesus says, is kindness not reciprocating the awfulness that they hurled at you. There's at least two things that you and I have to be blind to to hurl back the evil that was hurled at us. Probably more, but at least two. God's kindness and God's justice. I just mentioned his justice. Miroslav Volf says the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance, that somebody is paying attention that every moment, every evil will have to give an answer. Something that um, I've noticed over the years, this is not a big insight, you've noticed it too, but football games, basketball games, baseball games, where the officials are kind of asleep at the wheel, get out of hand fast, right? Why? Because all the players are like, if this moron isn't seeing what's going on, I'm going to make it right. And so if there's like an illegal tackle on you in a soccer game, you're like, when he's not looking, I'm going to get this guy back. We're going to put him in his place. We're going to bring order back. When you and I think that there's no one watching, when God's asleep at the wheels, when the minor and major low-key and high-key insults that come your way are missed, you will start going and getting vengeance for yourself. And it will participate and perpetuate what's worst in the world, what's most characteristic of the kingdom of darkness. But Jesus calls you to see your father who has eyes and is watching and to know that he is just and to know that he is detailed. And that frees you to turn the other cheek and to receive a second insult or a third insult. But I also said it means to miss out and to be asleep to God's kindness if you find yourself repeatedly hurling back the evil that's hurled at you. The comments on a post that shouldn't have been made. A comment a sibling or a parent makes to you that they never should have said. You know, somebody misunderstands you fundamentally for the wrong reasons. If you're asleep to God's kindness, you will retaliate in a dark and ugly way. If you're awake to God's kindness, you're less likely to retaliate. And Jesus also says that we're much more like our enemies than different. And this is the pathway to kind of looking at how God, 
or being awakened to God's kindness. The first step towards that, I think, is realizing I'm much more like my enemies than I'm different than them. There's two places in this passage where Jesus tips his hat in this direction. He says in verse 46, don't even corrupt tax collectors love like you. Verse 47, don't even the pagans who ignore me treat their friends the way you treat your friends. He's talking to the crowd behind the crowd he's talking to. He's got his disciples and he's got the Pharisees and the scribes and all the other people who are kind of listening in. And he's saying to them and to us, don't your enemies live just like you? And he's saying, in gentleness, but in truth, he's saying, you kind of remind me of your enemies. And when I think about your enemies, they kind of remind me of you. Now, if he said that to me, point blank, I'd be fired up. I'd be mad. I'd be confused. I'd be upset. I'd want to argue. I'd want to defend and say, you got it wrong. I'm not like them. Miroslav Volf, again, gets to the heart of this. He's a man who knew something about forgiveness growing up in Eastern Europe around the time of the wars in Serbia and the genocide. And he said, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of, God, of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion without transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrous into the sphere of shared humanity and herself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. It's a little bit of clunky language, but he's saying, do you see your enemies fundamentally as monsters or do you see yourself in them? And do you see the humanity that you see in yourself and the goodness that you see in yourself also in your enemies? Gospel payback comes from recognizing that you and I, if you're God's friend, we're at one time God's enemy. And this is the next step of waking up to God's kindness. Alfred Plummer is a scholar and he said to return evil for good is devilish, to return good for good is human, but to return good for evil is divine. And he's right. God is a God who does not return evil for evil, but returns mercy for evil to those who seek refuge in his son, Jesus. Jesus doesn't really get too detailed in unpacking all the different motivations of why we're to love like this, except to say simply, love like this because your father is like this. Treat your enemies like this because your father treats his enemies like this. Your father treats you like this. Romans 6 says something crazy. Paul is going through this litany of the state we were in when God pursued us, when he loved us. While you were weak, Christ died for you. While you were sinners, God pursued you. While you were his enemy, he loved you. When you were in a state of full-blown, self-declared enmity and rebellion against God, his heart towards you as he pursued you and made you alive in his son Jesus was a heart of love. Psalm 103, I wanted to read for you as we wrap this up. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits 
who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, and redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Jesus says his father is one who sends beautiful fall, blue sky, breezy days to his enemies just like his own. And he sends rain to water the crops of those who hate him the same way he sends rain to water the crops of those who love him and fear him. I was driving back from fall conference the other day, and I was blown away by the kind of weekend that we had. The speaker, like y'all said, was amazing. His words really connected. It was needful things for us to hear. The weather was brilliant. Some of y'all went to the top of Mount Yonah, and your pictures were amazing. Y'all took care of each other really well. We were so thankful for how people cared for other people on that conference. We didn't have any injuries. And I'm driving back, and I'm like, Lord, Given where my heart was the week before when it was raining every day and I thought it was going to rain through this, when I thought COVID was going to scuttle this, when I thought the Auburn game was going to mean nobody's going to come, I deserved the worst weekend of my life. And what you gave me was good and was kind, it was generous, it was beautiful, it was compassion. It was not what I deserved. And then I started thinking back to my whole life and I'm thinking my years here in Athens when I was just decidedly running away from him, consciously resisting him, consciously content to be his enemy. And while I was asleep, every night he put another breath in my lungs and another beat in my heart, and he gave me good friends and good memories and money to pay tuition and an education. And he kept me alive long enough to hear the gospel, and he preached the gospel to me, and he surrounded me by his people. And I'm like, mercy, 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 mercy. Every day of that, I was his enemy, and that was his heart towards me, not firing away like a pistol, but breaking like a circuit breaker for my sake. Charles Wesley got the gospel. He was one of the greatest English hymn writers, and he gets the gospel, and he gets the heart of God, and he gets the effect it has on our heart when he wrote, Depth of Mercy Can There Be, and he said, I have long withstood his grace, long provoked him to his face, would not hearken to his calls, grieved him by a thousand falls. I have spilled his precious blood, trampled on the Son of God, filled with pangs unspeakable, I who yet am not in hell. I, my master, have denied, I afresh have crucified and profaned his holy name, put him to an open shame. And yet that is the man that Jesus broke and absorbed the evil and paid for the evil and repaid innocence for sin and forgiveness for condemnation and release for captivity. And if you have been transformed by his mercy, the Father says, I'm making you more like me. I'm making you a little more like my son. It's my greatest desire for you. It's my joy for you. It's my eager agenda in your life. And he says, will you walk down the road of learning to repay 
your enemies the way I repay mine. Let's pray. Jesus, this is a tall order. It seems impossible. Because the injuries that are done to us, the insults that are hurled us that are, are real. And they hurt and they make us cry. And they make us scared that now people think something differently or wrong of me or people misunderstand me. But Jesus, people misunderstood you. They treated you not in ways you deserved. We pray that you would bring your grace and your mercy and your release in the presence of your spirit to make us more like you, to accomplish your agenda in the hearts of your people, that we might truly be light and salt in this way, in a polarized world where enemy hate hates enemy. We ask this in your name.